0: Well, welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, we're going to do a little flip-flop this morning, so if you have your text, open your Bible to the book of Judges. Uh, kids, uh, feel free to, at this time to go ahead and head off to Kids Church. I believe uh, uh, Trina is waiting for you back there, and if she's not, come back, but I think she is. All right, for the rest of us, uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges, and we're going to be in chapter three of the book of Judges. And so as we're, uh, as we're doing that, as the kids are heading out, I'd invite you to Turn with me again to the book of Judges. We have begun um, a series on the book of Judges called The Downward Spiral, and uh, we this morning are going to be getting into the first judge, the first uh, story. We find six uh, major stories in the book of Judges, six major judges, and I think we have a lot to learn from these judges. Uh, This morning we're going to start kind of a two-part series, if you will, within the book of Judges called Unlikely Heroes, uh, and it's titled that because the first two uh, judges uh, in the book of Judges are what I would consider underdogs, unlikely heroes. And uh, so that's where we're going to be this morning. Let's do this. Let's have a quick word of prayer, prepare our hearts and minds, and uh, we'll jump into it. Father, It's good for us to be here uh, this morning. We're so grateful that we can come and that we can um, sing uh, Hosanna uh, to you. Uh, We can ask that you would come have your way among us. Uh, Father, it's so good for us to engage in worship uh, to you. You have uh, created us. You have made us for yourself. You have redeemed us by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and you have uh, caused us uh, by faith in your Son uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit to be born again, uh, to be made new creatures and uh, to begin life afresh in a right relationship with you, uh, justified and Declared right and father you are in the process of making us into the people that you want us to be for your glory and for our joy. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we uh, open up your word uh, that your, your spirit would be among us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, help us to uh, take in your word, challenge us, convict us, encourage us, whatever we need in our life. I pray that you would do that now and, and that you would speak through me um, and that your word would go forth um, in power and in might again uh, for our joy and so that you might uh, receive uh, honor um, from what we do here. And so, we um, ask for your presence. We trust that you'll be among us. We ask as we uh, just break open your word that it would be good and powerful and satisfying to us. And we ask you in the great name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Unlikely heroes is where we're going to begin. Uh, I think most of us uh, enjoy the story of unlikely heroes. I think most of us enjoy rooting for the underdogs. I don't know about you, uh, as you, you may know, I'm a sports fan, and uh, if I'm watching a particular game, whether it be football or basketball, really any sport, um, if I don't have any teams, you know, necessarily to root for, um, I don't know about you, but I typically kind of go for the underdog. I kind of pick the the team that's you know, un- unlikely to win, especially if if it's a big upset, and, and I think there's just such a tendency uh, for us to kind of go for the underdog, to root for the unlikely heroes. And as I think about, um, throughout maybe sports history, some unlikely heroes, some underdogs, uh, I think about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Uh, now, I'll, I'll have to confess that in 1980, um, I was barely born, so I, you know, I didn't get to experience this one firsthand, you know? Um, but um, I know, you, you guys are like, man, you're young. Yeah, I'm about to turn 30 here in, in a few months, so... Bear with me. Uh, I wasn't there uh, for it, but I hear, and I've seen the tape, uh, that it was one of the, if not, if not the biggest... Sports upset of all time. We have the U.S. hockey team in the semifinal game against the Russians. And if you remember way back when, uh, the Russians dominated uh, the hockey landscape, if you will, for several, several decades. And they were at that time in 1980 by far uh, the strongest, the most experienced, the best team out there. And the U.S. team was made up of a bunch of ragtag college kids who were probably no older than 22 or 23 at the most. Uh, This event, this game, uh, this miracle, if you will, was made popular by a recent movie, I think it was 2005, called Miracle, a Disney movie. Maybe you saw it. A really good movie portraying just the unlikelihood of this uh, of this upset. Uh, so what I want to do is just kind of show a real, uh, a real short clip. I want to show you the footage of the actual game. Uh, now, you'll have to bear in mind that this was footage from 30 years ago, so it's not the best... Uh, quality, it's not real crisp, but you get the points. And what I want you to really notice as you see um, kind of the final seconds is uh, from the commentators and from the fans and the stands and from the players themselves, you get um, an idea of just the enormous, the enormous upset, just how huge this was. And so let's watch kind of uh, these unlikely heroes here. All right. You may not even be a sports fan, but you can't help but feel a little tingly at that. It's amazing to see uh, the exuberance on their faces. This, I think, was a story—one of the best stories I think of. Unlikely heroes. As we get into Judges this morning, the first two stories in the book of Judges, uh, the first one being a story by the na- of a judge by the name of Neil. It is indeed a story of an unlikely hero. So what I want to do is kind of get into the text this morning, uh, read a little bit about Othniel, and then see five principles. I hope we can see five principles this morning from the life of Othniel, um, the unlikeliest of heroes, if you will. Uh, before we do that, I kind of want to give just a quick, a quick overview, if you will. I, I, like I said, there are six major judges in the book of Judges. Othniel is the first one. A couple points that I want us to find out uh, before we kind of read the story. And So a couple things about Othniel and his story, um, if we could go to the next slide. First thing that we see uh, about Othniel is that it's, he's portrayed as the ideal judge. He is the ideal judge. And what I mean by that is, Othniel is the judge by which all of the other judges, all of the other stories that we're going to see throughout this series is going to be compared to. He is uh, the only judge that really receives no word of criticism. That is when we read the story, and we're going to read it in a second. It's not going to take very long. There's nothing bad said about him. He's portrayed as perfect, as ideal, as the standard. And so it starts good. The book of Judges starts well, uh, so to speak, with the judges. He is an ideal judge. But as we're going to see, there's a downward spiral of morality as we go throughout the book of Judges, not only with the nation, but also the judges themselves. And what I mean by that is Othniel's good and worse and worse and worse. So first of all, Othniel's portrayed as the ideal judge. Secondly, Othniel's the shortest and the least detailed of the stories. This is going to be really clear when we get to it. Uh, to be frank, uh, Othniel's story is it's not eye popping. It's kind of boring. To be real honest, there's nothing spectacular about it. In fact, uh, there's no, uh, there's not, there's no plot. There's no climax. Um, there's no dialogue. Uh, there's just, it's just kind of plain Jane, if you will. Uh, but don't worry, don't worry. They're gonna get much, much juicier. So just hang with me. The first one is kind of bland. In fact, one one commentator calls it this. He says that Othniel's story is quote short and sterile. And this is from a Bible commentator. So here we go. But I hope that this sermon will not be sterile. And you're certainly hoping that's going to be short. But here we go. And, but this is intentional. You know what I uh, It's short. There's not much to it. But I think uh, the author does it intentionally. One of the reasons is, is because Othniel, like we said, is the ideal judge. He's the best judge. And really, it's kind of that old principle about, you know, the, the worst guys make the best movies. You know what I mean? They don't make movies about typically good, moral, upright guys. They're kind of boring in people's eyes, but we tend to have big stories and books written about people of, well, let's just say questionable character. Othniel has unquestionable character, and his story is short and sweet. But not only for that, but I think what we see is the author really wants us to get the fact, starting with the very first judge, that God is the hero in the story. It's about God. It's about God delivering his people. And he uses the judges and he uses Othniel, but God is really the hero. He stands out in this very short uh, story of Othniel. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and read the text. And uh, from the text, hopefully we'll see five principles uh, that we can apply from our life. So um, if you will uh, read along on the screen uh, with me or in your Bibles, starting in verse seven says this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of here we go. Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years. Verse nine. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, and the story uh, continues in verse ten. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And it concludes in verse eleven. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan rishathaim So here we have uh, the story here. And uh, like I said, it's uh, short and uh, it's sweet and uh, it's kind of sterile, if you will. Uh, and the text closes in verse 11 by saying this. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there we go. There's the story of Othniel, like I said, short, sweet, no detail, to the point, and God is the hero. So, first principle that we see. This is a short text, but there's actually a ton of stuff that we can learn. And so I want us to to learn the first principle here. The first principle that we see from the text is that God can overcome any challenge His people face and we see that from verse 8 God can overcome any Challenge that his people face. I'll read verse 8 to you again. It's not on the screen Uh, You can look in your bibles Uh, verse 8 says this uh, uh, Verse 7 the people of the lord did uh, Did evil and so this is how god responds therefore the anger of the lord was kindled ...against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of this king, Kushan. Let's just call him Kushan for short, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan for eight years. And so here we have the story beginning. Uh, God's people did evil. Uh, They served uh, foreign gods. They rebelled against their king. They turned from him. And we see the response of God here. It says, the anger of the Lord was kindled. Uh, This is a really interesting uh, portrait of God's response, of his anger when his people disobey him and rebel against him, literally... Uh, You don't see this in in English, but literally in the Hebrew, uh, the the phrase that's translated, the anger of the Lord was kindled, literally is, the Lord's nose became hot. That's literal. The Lord's nose became hot it's a it's a picture of god's holy and his righteous anger when he sold them into captivity now the image i think is familiar to most of us um, i want you to ask you maybe you know someone who when they get very angry they get very worked up uh they get very upset um, how many of you know know people you don't have to raise your hand or anything how many of you know people when that happens they're really worked up their face turns what turns red. Uh, if you're lucky, you've got some veins popping out here or there. You know, you've got some eyes bulging. And literally, in the Hebrew, when, when it speaks of God's patience, that is, that it takes him a long time to get angry, it says that it, ta- the Lord a long, it takes his nose a long time to get red, meaning he's not quick to anger. But here, his nose is very red. His eyes are bulging out. He is angry. Because of his people's sin, and so what does he do? He gives them over to the king of Mesopotamia. Now, what I want us to see here—the the principle that we're getting at—is that God can overcome any challenge that His people are facing, and we see that really for a couple, a couple, a couple reasons, a couple ways. Notice the name of the king. He sold them into the hand of hard name Kushan rishathaim uh, You know, without if, if reading it in English, you're like, okay, weird name. Pass over it. But this is really significant. The author here is trying to tell us something about how bad and about how evil and about how difficult of an oppressor this king from Mesopotamia is. Because literally in Hebrew, Kushan Rishathayim means, here we go. This is, this is not something that most people name their son. Dark, doubly wicked. That's, that's what this name means. He is Mr. Dark. Doubly wicked. Now, do you think his mama gave him that name? You, th- you know, you think he came out of the womb and she's like, Wow, he's really dark and he's going to be doubly wicked. Probably not. This is not his real name. Most, ever, most commentators believe that this is the, the name that the Hebrews gave him, that the Israelites gave him. Why? Because he was the worst of the oppressors. He was the worst, the harshest, the meanest, the most dominant of all of the oppressors that we 're going to see throughout the book of judges, and so the author is trying to give us a clue. this guy is hard; he was the worst. It was a huge challenge that god 's people were facing. A couple little, uh, a little tidbit that we see that really shows us how powerful this Mr. Dark, doubly wicked was well, it has to do with geography. Notice with me uh, if you have your Bibles, and he sold them into the hand of Mr. Kushan, doubly wicked. And he was the king of Mesopotamia. And we get a hint here from where he was from, from where he came and how he oppressed Israel. Oftentimes, in fact, the rest of the story of the book of Judges, what we see is that these um, Canaanite tribes will rise up uh, in certain regions of the nation of Israel and they will oppress certain regions of the nation. And so what God does throughout the book of Judges is he raises up, judges deliverers from that region of israel to fight that particular king does that make sense to put it another way if we if it were america so to speak and uh uh, there was a an oppressor who was coming up from mexico to oppress us god then would raise up a deliverer from texas if you will right (laughs) i'll stop there um from Texas, let's say that we were being oppressed from, uh, you know, say, Cuba. God would raise up a deliverer from Florida. If God were oppressing us from Canada, and we all know that's not going to happen, but if he were uh, from Canada, he would raise up someone from, say, like, North Dakota. You get the point, right? He raises up a deliverer from where they're coming. Let's take a look at this map. I think it's there. There it is. What we see is from the very bottom, see that Judah, the beer, that is where uh, Othniel is from. And so he is from the southern region of Israel. But the king from Mesopotamia, if you see from up here, is to the northeast, the far northeast. And so what that shows us is that this king oppressed Israel, pretty much the whole entire nation, from the north to the south, because God didn't raise up someone from Manasseh or Ephraim up up north, he raised someone from the south. The point that we're getting, and we can move along here, is that this guy was the worst oppressor. It was a huge challenge. And so what we see is that God is going to deliver his people from this challenge that probably for them seemed impossible. It was a a huge challenge. In fact, one commentator by the name of Block says it this way, and he really makes the point. If Yahweh could deliver Israel from this emperor, he could rescue them from any foe. And that's the point. And so the challenge for us is what challenge in our lives is it that is a, a dark, doubly wicked kind of challenge? Uh, who is our uh, Who is our Mr. Kushan in our life? What is it that we are facing that it seems almost impossible to overcome? What foe is it? Uh, maybe for you it's the foe of marital conflicts. It's a huge foe. Maybe it's the foe of bitterness uh, in your life. And maybe it's the foe of envy or jealousy of something or someone that you just can't get to. Maybe it's the foe of addiction and you're battling and you're battling and he seems to be winning. Maybe it's the foe of overeating or, or a guilty conscience or, or depression. Uh, maybe worry, anxiety. Maybe it's the foe of financial stress. Whatever it may be, whatever the foe it is that you're facing, whatever the challenge that you can't overcome, what the author is pointing out to us very clearly is our first principle that God can overcome Any challenge that his people face, verse 8. Second principle, moving right along, we see from verse 9. Second principle that we see is simply this. God saves us out of grace. God saves us out of grace and not out of merit. And we see this from verse 9. Again, if you have in your Bibles verse 9, I'll read it again. God saves us out of grace. So God gives them over to this king. In verse 9, but when the people of Israel, catch the word, cried out. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, what did God do? It says the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And so they're in sin. They're being oppressed by this dark, doubly wicked oppressor. And they say, eight years is enough, God. Please, we are miserable. He's mean and evil and he's harming us and he's oppressing us. God save us and we see that God does but what I want us to see is that he saves them out of grace not out of merit notice what the text doesn't say it doesn't say that the people repented I don't think the word cried out here it doesn't mean repent I don't think that people really repented I don't think they hardly do throughout the whole rest of the book but they cried out they were suffering they were in anguish and God looks at that pain, and uh, in chapter 2, uh, the text tells us that God looks on his, looked on his people and he had pity for them. That's the word. He had pity. He had, his heart was broken because of the pain that they were going through. And, how he, and so he simply saves them out of grace. He doesn't say, well, are you going to repent? Well, are you going to turn your life around? Well, are you going to break down on the idols? Then I'll save you. No. Very simply, we see a real clear but staggeringly important point that when god saves us he he saves us out of grace not because we earn it but notice what the people did I made the point that they cried out to him. Uh, the word cry out, this is kind of what the word means. It has the idea of a loud shout, a loud cry, if you will, from someone in a dire predicament. And Israel was certainly in a dire predicament. Uh, the image that I like to use is, is this one. Uh, Maybe somewhat familiar uh, to us. Uh, if we can turn to the next image, which I hopefully is... The, there we go. Uh, this is an old black and white image, right? We're all familiar with this image, right? There's a, a, a damsel in distress. And the dam- Damsel is, well, apparently in this, uh, in this one, she is fainted. But in most of the ones that I've seen, you know, there's a villain and the villain ties her up, right, and sticks her on the train track and, oh, help, 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 right? You know what I'm talking about. And, and she looks around and she hears the train, choo-choo, in the distance, and she panics and she's moving and, oh, it's getting closer. And she, what does she do? She's in a dire predicament. She knows that she can't do anything about that predicament because she's tied up or fainted in this case, and she cried out. She says, help, help me, I'm in danger. This is the idea of the text. And what I want us to see here is very simple. This gets to the heart of the Christian faith. And the heart of the Christian faith, we call it the good news, we call it the gospel, is simply this, that God saves us, he delivers us from the dire danger that we are in, from His holy wrath, from His righteous judgment upon all humanity, my sins and your sins included. If you will, uh, God's wrath is like the train. It's coming at us. It's big, it's bulky, it's powerful, and it's imminent. It's imminent. And we are tied up. The Bible says that we are tied up in our sin, that we are enslaved to sin, if you will, and that there's nothing that we can do to get out of it. We can't deliver ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We're like the damsel in distress who's tied up, and we have no choice but to call out. God, save me. Help me. And the Bible says that when we call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and we place our faith in him, and we stop trying to get out of the ropes ourselves. that Jesus, in this scenario, comes and he unties our knots and he sets us free. And so we see that God saves us out of grace. The beauty is that God saves us for free when we cry out to him and place our faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, now let me clean you up and I'll change your life. And that's the good news of the Christian faith this morning. And if you've never experienced that kind of grace before, that kind of transformation, I want you to know it's absolutely free and it's simply by faith. You call out to God in your heart and you mean it. You need salvation and deliverance and God will save you and He'll change you. Second principle, God saves us out of grace. Third principle that we see, it's also found in verse 9. Third principle that we see this morning is this. God uses those who are faithful in little things, getting back to the story of Othniel, God uses those who are faithful in the little things to be uh, extraordinary in the bigger things, and we see this in verse nine. We see this specifically from the name, or, or the character, or the story of Othniel himself. Again, it says the text says in verse nine that he raised up a deliverer who saved them, and then he gives the name. We finally know the deliverer. His name's Othniel. Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Caleb's younger brother. And so this is Caleb's nephew, if you will. And what we see is that um, we see in the book of Judges that Othniel, this is the second time that he pops out. Uh, we kind of skipped this story um, before, but it's found in chapter uh, 1, I believe. It's found when Judah, the tribe of Judah, was taking the lead and they were having military victory. We find this really short periscope, this really short story, and Othniel's there. Um, I'm not going to ask you to, to turn there, but I invite you to, to look it up later. But in chapter 1, we've, not, we've heard from Othniel before. In chapter 1, basically what Othniel does is in faith and obedience to God. He leads God's people, the tribe of Judah, into taking, capturing this Canaanite city. He has faith that God will do it. God has told him to do it. He leads them into battle and God gives them gives them the victory. And so he's faithful in that. One small task, delivering, uh, conquering one city. Not only that, but he's faithful to marry an Israelite woman. He's faithful to marry someone from within the family of faith. We see that this is in stark contrast, if you will, to the majority of God's people during that time. Because during that time, if you recall, uh, the tribe of Judah had success militarily because they trusted in God. But most, if not all, of the other tribes did not. They failed to trust in God. They failed to be obedient to God. And so they, they didn't win. They didn't take the cities that they were supposed to. Also, unlike most of the other Israelites, we find a comment uh, starting in verses, I believe it's verse 6 in chapter 3, right before this periscope, uh, chapter 3. Uh, what we see is that most of the Israelites at that time were intermarrying with pagan people, and they were worshiping other gods. And so we see, the point that I'm getting at, is that we've seen Othniel before. We've seen Othniel in a smaller role in the book of Judges, and what he's doing is simply trusting in God, being obedient to God. He takes the city, he marries the right woman. He's acted faithful to God. And so, lo and behold, we see him show up in chapter three. And guess what? He has been faithful in the the smaller things that God has given him to do. And guess what? He gets a big, big assignment from God. He gets to be the judge that has a bigger, even bigger and even a more significant task. And that is not only uh, saving God's people from one city, but saving literally here the entire nation. He is the man, the entire nation, a bigger task. And so we see the principle. God uses those to do big things. He uses those to do big things who are faithful in the little things. And so applicationally speaking, I want to ask us a hard question. What is it that you want God to do in your life, in your ministry here at the church, in your conversations with unbelievers outside the church, in your personal life, in your family, What is it that you want God to do that is a big thing? It it would be a big thing if God would do that in your life. What what are those big things? And so if you have that in mind, then I want to ask you this question. What are the little things that God wants you to do to enable you to do the big things? What are the small things that will enable you to do the big things? For instance, do you want God to do something big in our church? I would love... God to do something big in our church, but are we being faithful in the little things? Are we praying for our church consistently? Are you guys praying for me and our leadership consistently? Are you praying for each other consistently? Are you praying for opportunities to share the gospel and to serve people? The the little things. Are, Are we doing those? Maybe you want God to do something big in your family, and so are you doing the little things? Maybe you want your kid to be the next Billy Graham, but are you praying for him? Are you teaching him the Bible? Are you spending time with him and growing your relationship with him? Are you making church a priority rather than sports or friendships or homework? Are are you leading by example? Because if you want your kid to be the next Billy Graham, to be used of God greatly, how are you doing that? You're doing the small things. So we've seen three principles. God can overcome any challenge. He saves us out of grace. Uh, Thirdly, we've seen that uh, God uses people who are faithful In small things to do big things. Fourthly, we see that God uses people regardless of their background, and we see this in verse nine again. God uses people. God uses people oftentimes regardless, and often times in spite of their background. And we see this again from uh, who Othniel is. We see Othniel uh, was faithful before. But we see a little bit about Othniel's background. You have to do a little study. I'm not going to take you to these verses, but trust me on this one. What we find out about Othniel when you do a little study is that he is not completely, purely Israelite in background. If you will, he's not a pure-blooded Israelite, which back in those days, uh, in particular, to the nation, that was, you know, that was a big deal. That was significant. Um, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, what we find out, in short, is that Caleb and Kenaz are brothers and that their father, according to Numbers 32.12, if you want to write it down, Numbers 32.12, he was a Kenite, a Kenazite, excuse me. And that essentially was, when you do your study... The Kenizzites were a pagan tribe from the region of Edom who essentially came to be incorporated with God's people, specifically the tribe of Judah. You could call them proselytes. Maybe a different and a better word would be they were converts. They were converts. They were people who were not Israelite of race who came by faith to be committed to the true God through God's people, Israel. And so this is significant because here we have the worst oppressor, and God is going to choose someone who's going to deliver his people from the worst of the worst, and he doesn't choose a pure-blooded Israelite. Probably much to the question and dismay of many during that day. This, His background could have been seen, I think, as a disadvantage, maybe even as a disqualification for Othniel to be used in such a, such a big way. I mean, this was a huge deal to be this judge at this time. And yet God often uses people regardless of their backgrounds. I want to share a quick Newsweek article with you. It's just a snippet. But the article from Newsweek is called Advice to Bored Young Men. Advice to Bored Young young Men. And, And the article is really talking about Benjamin Franklin. So I just want to read a short snippet. It says this. Many people reading this page are doing so with the aid of bifocals. Inventor, Benjamin Franklin, age 79. 79. The presses that printed this page were powered by electricity. One of the first harnesses, Benjamin Franklin, age 40. Some of you are reading this on the campus of of a college, of an Ivy League college. Founder, Ben Franklin, age 45. Others may be in a library. Who founded the first library in America? We get the point. Ben Franklin, age 25. Who started the first fire department? Ben Franklin, age 31. Who invented the lightning rod? Franklin, age 43. Who designed a heating stove still in use today? Ben Franklin, age 36. It concludes by saying this. Wit, uh, uh, conversationalist, economist, philosopher, diplomat, printer, publisher, linguist. He he spoke and and wrote five languages. That's four more than me. Advocate of paratroopers from balloons a century before the airplane when it was invented. Isn't that crazy? That's interesting. All of this until the age of 84. And here's the kicker. It concludes by saying this. And he had exactly two years of formal education. Amazing that God would somehow in his providence allow someone with this kind of a background to do those kind of amazing things. This is what we're talking about. God often uses people regardless of their background. So what about you? Let's take it home a little bit. I think all of us, if we were to be honest about ourselves, if we look at our life, if we look at our past, uh, in particular our past, we would say, you know, there are things in our background, things in our past, things in our character, that really are just um, less than ideal, if you will, for God to use. Less than ideal things. We we aren't the perfect believer that God would use in our minds, I And neither was Othniel. So, what are those things? What are those things that you might say? You know what? My background is just not just not right for God to use. Maybe, uh, maybe it's uh, the home that you grew up in. Uh, Maybe you, unlike many of us, uh, you didn't have the privilege of growing up in what you would consider a Christian home. Maybe your family is full of unbelievers. Your mom, your dad. uh, Maybe one is a believer. Maybe you didn't go to church growing up. Maybe you're like Bible, uh, okay, what, what front back? How does this thing work? You know, you, you you don't you don't know much. You don't have you didn't have the experience of going to Bible studies and Bible school and that kind of thing. You never learned the Bible. You were uh, kept uh, you weren't kept from unhealthy things growing up. Maybe it's your family and you're like, man, I just don't, I don't have the background that some people have. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe it's uh, the marriage that your parents had. Maybe uh, it was unhealthy. Maybe it was dangerously unhealthy. Maybe you have no idea. You didn't, you've never seen it. What it means to be a godly husband. What it means to be a godly wife. You have no clue because your family, your background, it was anything less than godly. And, and that, that's it. Maybe it's just your past before you became a believer. Uh, maybe uh, before you came to know Christ, uh, you know, you engaged in the famous three, drug, sex, rock and roll, those kind of things. Maybe your life was colorful before you came to Christ. And you're like, man, how can God use me? Well, I'm here to tell you that regardless of what your background may be, regardless of what Othniel's background was, God often chooses to use those people to do great things. So we've seen four principles and we get to our fifth and it's found in verse 10. Our fifth principle is found in verse 10, and it's this. God uses those who who rely upon the Holy Spirit. God often uses those who not only have insufficient backgrounds, but he really uses those who who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see this emphasis uh, very clearly in verse 10. If you'll look with me in your Bibles. Verse 10 says this, The Spirit of the Lord... Was upon him. This is not the uh, the only time we'll see God's Spirit working in the midst of the judges, but it's emphasized here for Othniel. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave King Kushan, doubly wicked, uh, of Mesopotamia, into his hands. And the point that I want to make here in closing is very simple. Um, Othniel did something that was outside of his natural realm of capability. I don't think Othniel on his own power, on his own strength, that he could have mustered up the troops of Israel and defeated this doubly dark, wicked king. It was was the spirit of God. In fact, the text says that the Lord gave the king into his hands. And so this was something supernatural. This was something beyond his capabilities. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian. He enables us to do things that we can't do on our own. He changes our life and our character and our responses and our attitudes to be something that's unnatural. He shapes uh, that which we, are uh, natural personalities, but sometimes he uses those in strange ways. Um, and, and I think my life to a large degree is an example. And so sharing really briefly... Um, not at all to, to puff myself up in any way. Uh, but if you were to know me when I was growing up, I was very shy, and uh, still am, I think. But very shy, uh, didn't talk much, um, was terribly afraid of what people thought of me, and terribly afraid, really, to get in front of anyone. And so when it came time in high school, I think my sophomore year, to have speech class, I, I would be terrified to go to speech class. I hated speech class because you had to get up and read in front of the class not just talk Read in front of someone and I was terrified. I hated it. Oh, I hated it So then I went to college. I got saved in high school Went to college. That was still kind of a part of still part of my dna Um, had To take a speech class and I think we had to give three speeches and i'm sure I probably threw up before all three of them You know, and it's not like they were long You know, I go real long now, right? But I mean seriously, it's not like they were long I hated it. If you were to ask anyone growing up, is, is Trey going to be a public speaker, preacher, whatever, I guarantee that none of them would say yes. Lo and behold, God's Spirit comes upon you, gifts you, and I'm not the best speaker in the world by any stretch, um, but I think God's gifted me in that. And so what he's enabled me to do, it's really not of myself. It's, you know, it's not who I am, but it's God, who God made me to be. And so uh, the point here is that... Um, God uses people who trust in the Spirit. And so what about you? What about you? Is there areas in your life that you would consider supernatural? Is there anything that you see in your ministry, in your life, in your character, that you're like, man, that's not me. I know who I am naturally. This is this is God. This is the Spirit of God working on me. And it doesn't have to be big things. You don't have to get up in front of people and preach or go be a missionary or whatever. Although if you are, then you better do it. But, you know, it may be small things like, You see God changing your perspective on your spouse slowly, but surely he's changing your heart towards them. Maybe slowly, but surely you find that you really struggled with worry and anxiety, but you're praying more and you're giving it over to God and supernaturally you're making progress in this area. Maybe it's the way that you handle that other Christian in our church or other churches that, you know, let's just be honest. You don't like them. They don't like you. There's tension. Maybe you're Maybe god is changing how you handle yourself with that person and you know, it's not you It's the spirit of god in you. So we've seen five principles here Five principles and what I want us to do is I want us to I want us to respond to god I don't know which of these principles apply to you I don't know which of them touch your heart But i'm going to ask our music team to come up right now Come on up guys and as we come up i'm going to lead us just in a short prayer And then I want to give you just a few uh, a few seconds a few minutes just to pray just to consider, just to ask God, um, and speak to your heart, look through your notes. Um, what are those things? My, my hope and my prayer is that, like Othniel, I think all of us are, gonna, are, are unlikely heroes. But my prayer is that all of us would be unlikely heroes, and that we would be heroes, just like Othniel, by faith and by obedience. So let's pray. Father, we do pray for your word that it will impact our hearts and our lives. And I pray now as we uh, sit in silence and as we listen to music and as we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Uh, Father, I pray that we would deal with you. And I pray, I pray for people here, Father, if they've not uh, recognized, if they've not, uh, if they've not uh, come to faith in you through Christ, that there's a huge train of God's wrath barreling towards them. Uh, and Father, they're tied up because of their sin. They need a Savior. God, I pray that they would cry out right now and trust in Jesus and be changed. We ask it in Christ's name.